you could grab your Bibles. We're in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 15. 13 through 15. Before we begin, let me say a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we look to you now. We ask that your spirit would enlighten our minds and our hearts to see and understand your truth, that it may cause us to bear fruit in living it out. We ask that you would um, help us to be alert to your word, to be attentive to what it says, and to honor you as we listen and honor you as we hear from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 13 reads, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Titled this message, I made me do it. And I think it's clear from the text, especially verse 14, that sin comes from our hearts, comes from our own sinful desires within each one of us. So it's I made me do it. We can never say that God made me do it. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He can't be anything but those things. We can't blame it on Satan and say, Satan made me do it. We can't say others made me do it. We can't say my husband or wife made me do it because they got me angry and so I'm responding this way. We can't say even we, we kick a wall or we run into the chair and we blame the chair. Why would you blame the chair? You're the one who did it. We, we're in a car and we're driving and we, we get mad at the person who cut us off or who uh, almost hit our car. And we get mad at the car. We, we just love to blame other people and even other things that aren't even alive. And so... I made me do it. And I hope that sticks with you. I made me do it. This is in relation to temptation and sin. Again, that arises from our own sinful nature and our sinful hearts. And so James is about growing into Christian maturity. Growing into Christian maturity. It describes the lifestyle and convictions of a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Christians think. This is how Christians live This is how genuine faith proves itself and perfects itself. Real Christians have a saving faith that is validated, not produced, but validated by what they do and by what they don't do. And as we'll see in this passage is how we don't respond to temptation, how we don't respond to trials that cause us to look to God and blame him or blame something else. We have the wisdom of God available to us to deal with difficulties and trials in life from God differently and successfully, we can and are commanded to consider it joy, to embrace it, to accept it, to engage the benefits that trials bring into our lives to grow and mature us and strengthen us into more Christ-likeness as we trust in God by, in prayer, by, in faith, and we boast in all that He is and all that He's doing in our lives, boast in all that we have in Christ, looking forward to the promise of being with Him. James has been teaching on understanding the why of 
faith testing trials and how to respond to trials. And it's all in relation to knowing God and who he is and what he's accomplishing in our lives, looking to him in faith, worshiping him for, again, who he is and what he is doing. He's doing a good work in us, a good work. This is in reference to testing from external trials that are intended for a good purpose rather than an enticement for us to respond in sin or for an evil purpose. We have seen that trials are a blessed test from last week from God that validates, refines, matures, and strengthens our faith and produces within us steadfastness and perseverance and the ability to remain under these trials in a way that honors God. But we know that we don't always respond to trials well. No one here always responds to trials well. And James is aware of this, and so he addresses the issue of temptation and sin. We have to understand that the difference is not in the test itself, the trial, but it's in the person's response to the trial. What God meant for our good may be an occasion for us to view them as not good and not coming from God for our good and our benefit and to look for us to look to other means of satisfying our own sinful desires and expressions of that. Trials and temptations are not the same thing, yet in the Greek, they come from the same word. The semantic field and entire word group includes both concepts of testing and temptation. Testing and temptation. James utilizes that shared semantic field in that entire word group, and he moves from one shade of the meaning, testing for a good purpose, which we saw in verses 2 through 4 and verse 12, and now he moves to the other shade of the meaning, enticement for an evil purpose, temptation, in verses 13 through 15. So he's giving us a comprehensive understanding of testing, trials, and temptation. God is immediately behind the test. But while he's ultimately behind all things as a providential sovereign ruler, he is not the immediate seducer to sin. He is not the immediate seducer to sin, and we will unpack that truth and see why. The one who is that seducer is you, is me, is our sinful hearts. And while Satan and the devil is not mentioned by name in this passage, his role as a solicitor to evil should not be discounted. But that is not James' focus here. The devil is mentioned later in James chapter 4, verse 7, and he'll talk about that, where it says, Submit therefore to God and resist the devil. And if you just think about that, we can resist the devil as those who are born again. We have the spirit within us that can fight against whatever Satan is trying to do. We can resist the devil and he will flee from you. We first have to understand who God is and address our own hearts when it comes to temptation as we face trials. And James says that the person who endures under the test of trials will do so by following the will of God and heavenly wisdom. The person who succumbs to temptation and sin will do so by following the desires of their own lustful hearts and worldly wisdom. So he calls Christians to be singularly devoted to God in faith and not to be double-minded and doubting of God's goodness. Testing trials, temptation, will either lead to disobedience or faith and a turning to God in obedience and worship, which will lead to wholeness and maturity and spiritual growth. And that's what he wants for us. What is the most misunderstood, misleading, shoved under the rug, justified, celebrated, blamed, disregarded, deceptive thing in this world that has I in the middle of it. 
sin. It's sin. And not just for unbelievers, but also for professing believers. And not just in the world, but also within the church. These verses have become a proof text. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 has become a proof text to say not only that the source of temptation comes from God or Satan or others, but that our lustful desires are not sin unless acted upon externally. In other words, it's only a sin when you act it out. It doesn't matter about your sinful thoughts or the desires that are going on within your hearts. Thinking about lying or thinking about cheating or thinking about committing adultery or even having same-sex attraction is not sin, but only the actual acts of doing it are. That goes against what God teaches in his word, and that is absolutely false teaching. Sin is the transgression of God's will in thought, word, or deed. It is anything that misses the mark of God's perfect, holy, righteous standard according to his word, according to who he is. And it has to do with the heart, the heart and the hands, the affections and the actions, the desires and the doing, the lust and the living out of it. One of the potential and prominent challenges when we go through difficult things is that we can blame God for our trials and the negative outcome that flows from them. We can blame God, we can blame others, and never look to our own sinful hearts and address the issue that is right there within us. And so we struggle as we go through trials. We never come to the bottom of them. We never know how to properly address it and so that we can not properly grow from them. And so we can think of trials in marriage. A husband and wife can be, have difficulty, have lots of conflict, not be happy in the marriage any longer, and God, and could think to themselves, God wouldn't want me to live like this. Jesus wouldn't want me to be unhappy. If I weren't with this person anymore, I could serve God better. It'll free me up. I'll be happier. I could go to church more. I can serve him more. I'll just be happier. We can blame so many other things and people instead of addressing what's going on right there in our hearts. Or how about the person who says, God made me with these attractions or desires in my life, so God would want me to act on them, right? It can't be sinful to act on the desires and the longing that God has placed in my heart, and so I can act on them because God is the one who made me this way. If God didn't want me to act on it, he wouldn't have made me like this with these desires. But that's just another way of saying that God wants me to sin. God doesn't want you to sin, and he doesn't make you sin. He wants you to consider trials joy. He wants you to know that what the trial is doing and producing within you, for you to depend on him and ask of him for wisdom in faith through prayer, to glory and to boast in him in all circumstances, and to receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and ultimately to receive the crown which is life, eternal life, being with Jesus, eternal life in its fullest. So trials and testing of our faith has a positive response, but it could also have a negative response of sinning. Your external trials can become internal temptations, and so do trials give new opportunities to sin? We have to ask ourselves, do trials give us new opportunities to sin? Does it therefore provoke us to sin? It's fair to, is it fair to say that God is putting you into a situation where you should sin or are tempted to sin because of what he's doing in your life. Could you ever say that God is making you to sin? In this section, James turns his attention 
from trials that lead to blessing and eternal life to trials that lead to sin and death so that we can rightly respond to temptations that come along with these testing trials from God. First, we'll look at verse 13, the impossibility, the impossibility. And then verses 14 and 15, we'll see the reality. So first, the impossibility, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Sin is against God's very nature. Sin is against God's nature. And there's a present active imperative command there for us. Let no one say. That's the command for us to obey. Let no one say. This is all the time. This is not an option. Don't ever say at any time that God is tempting me. And it even goes further than that to say that don't even imagine it or don't even think it, that at any time when you are tempted, you are being tempted by God. Why? Because that is impossible. That is impossible. James gives us two explanations. Look at verse 13. He says, For or because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And that should be clear enough for us. God cannot be tempted by evil, and therefore he himself can tempt no one else to evil. Holiness and sin are opposites. Holiness and sins are opposites. God is holy. He is separate from sin. He is perfectly pure. He is not like us. Sin is anything against God's nature. Sin is an attack on who he is. Sin is a deviation from who he is. It is impossible for God to sin or even be tempted to sin because that would be against his nature. And you act according to your nature. And so God can only act according to his nature and his nature is holy, perfectly pure and righteous. He says, be holy for I am holy. You are called to be holy because God is holy. If anything and everything that God does is by definition holy, then it is impossible for him to sin because whatever God does is righteous. Whatever God does is righteous and God is the standard for righteousness. Something is sin because it doesn't conform to God's perfect standard. When you think of his commandments, he's not holy because he does them perfectly, but rather the commandments come from God's heart. It reflects who he is. So God is not only holy because he keeps the law outside of himself, but the law is holy because it comes from God's nature within himself. That is why God can't sin or tempt anyone else to sin. But God does test you. God does test you to reveal the authenticity of your faith. Not to himself because he's omniscient, he knows all things, but for you to know, to have confidence and assurance. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Genesis 22. Verse 1 says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, "Now Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. What is going on there? God was testing Abraham not to make him sin, but testing Abraham to reveal to Abraham that his faith was real, 
God tests to strengthen our faith. He tests to grow our faith, to validate our faith, to perfect our faith, never to induce us to sin or to destroy our faith. God does not do that. It is to help, not to hurt us. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3 says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Psalm Psalm 7, verse 9 says, Establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Tries their hearts and minds. That's telling us that the righteous God tests the hearts and minds to establish those who are his, to show that their faith is genuine. God does not and cannot make anyone sin. God does not and cannot make anyone sin. God gets glory and worship through our obedience, through our obedience. God tests, but those tests are not designed to harm, but rather to expose Testing comes from God to reveal, and it does not include the temptation to sin. So trials and temptations are different. Trials are designed by God to bring blessing. Temptations by nature are seeking to bring destruction. Trials bring potential joy and blessing. Temptation brings death. Trials can bring us closer to God. Temptations and sin bring separation from God. Trials are to be endured. Temptation is to be fled and fleed from, and avoided. But we we want to think that temptation comes from God. We want to think that. But again, verse 13 says, God cannot. It's absolutely impossible. In fact, that's a static present, meaning it's not possible ever for for God to be tempted, and it's not possible ever for God to tempt anyone else. No one can say God is at fault. No one can say that God is at fault because no one at any time has ever been tempted by God. No one has ever been tempted by God, so they cannot blame God for what's for their temptation and sin. God will never excuse your sin because of where it gets you. Sinning is never the right answer to any situation you are in. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 describing God says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It goes against his nature, against who he is. Trials are designed for good by a good God, and temptation cannot be from God because he always does good. And it's not possible for the God of heaven, who is good, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, to entice you to do evil, to entice you to sin. Christians think differently. They We think differently. It cannot ever be God. It wouldn't ever be God because God of the Bible wouldn't be the God of the Bible if he did this, if this is what he did. But this idea that God tempts us to sin goes all the way back to the garden. This blame shifting and autonomy seeking, these two evil twins of boasting in self and blaming others is what we do best. Genesis 3, 12 and 13 says, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Abraham says, The woman whom you gave me is the problem. 
Therefore, you are responsible, God, and she is responsible. Eve says that the serpent made me do it. Everyone's shifting the blame. Isaiah 63, verse 17, Israel speaking to their God says, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? We are never to assign responsibility for temptation to God or even firstly to the enemy, Satan or the devil, or to anyone or anything else. Instead, we are to recognize the reality about temptation and sin. So if it is an impossibility for God to tempt us, and we are never to say or even think that God does tempt us, what is the truth about temptation and sin? Let's look at verses 14 and 15, the reality. James writes, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin is against God's nature, and sin is in accordance with our nature. Temptation originates from within each one of us. The source is our heart's desire, and it's referring to a sinful desire based upon the context, because desire and lust are the same word in Greek. A good translation would be lust, as the NESB has it. The desire, no desire is morally neutral. It is either good or evil. And here, speaking of this strong desire, it carries an evil connotation. But the word for desire can also be used in a good sense. I have a desire to please the Lord. I have a desire to be here to worship Him. I have a desire for my children to be saved. I have a desire for my parents to know the Lord. Those are all very good desires. And, and Paul used this in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, but not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Paul knew that this young church was facing a lot of afflictions and persecutions, and he longed and desired to see them face to face. That's a good desire. This word is used of a, a strong craving, a strong desire, having a strong appetite to acquire something to have something, to set your heart upon it, to long for it, and it's not always negative. But any longing or lusting for what God has prohibited is sinful. And here, desire carries an evil connotation in regards to how we respond in times of testing trials from God. The problem is with the desire, and it is with the means by which we seek to fulfill it. Both the desire and the action. But you might be thinking, but isn't Satan the tempter? Isn't he to blame? If God's not to blame, then let's blame Satan instead. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. Genesis 3, the serpent tempted Eve. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul sends Timothy to the young Thessalonian church that was facing persecution, and there he says, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Yes, Satan is a deceiver. He is a tempter, but he's not the source of the temptation. The source is your strong desire within you. And Satan manipulates what it is that your strong desire and appetite craves and wants. I'm hungry. Here's a fruit. I'm needy. I'm lonely. 
Here are some solutions. I don't want, I don't have what I need. Here, look at this. Take this. The enemy, the devil plays on the hunger that's already within our hearts, what our hearts want. And it solicits us in cooperation with our hunger to find solutions in things that God would not, that, in things that God would deem as sinful and disobedient and hurtful and that are against his will and his way. The devil doesn't originate our desire, but rather influences it. Because the desire is already within our hearts and we are carried away and enticed by it. In James chapter 1, verse 14, there are two participles that modify the main verb tempted, which tells us what happens because of our own desire or lust and therefore tempted. It says we are carried away and we are enticed. We are carried away and enticed. And these are fishing and hunting terms. To be carried away means to be drawn out of a safe place into a place of vulnerability, to be put in, to put yourself into danger. And you can imagine a fish coming out of the coral rocks or the reef or the plants out into danger. You can imagine a small animal within the bushes coming out, being lured and enticed, being carried away by their desires that they see something that they want. They come out and make themselves vulnerable to danger. Entice means to be baited as with a lure. In other words, it's the worm. This is the lure. This is the fake food at the end of the hook. This is the promise that can't be fulfilled. It's designed to misrepresent reality, and we fall for it, and we keep falling for it, and we fall for it again. It provides false forms of gratification and attempts to convince us that it's okay or that no one will know or that this is just a small thing So we are drawn out, enticed by something that offers the promise of fulfillment because of the present sinful desire within us that wants it. What is luring and enticing you? What is it for you? Is it is it the trial? It's not. The source of what is luring and enticing you is inside of you. The trial is from God. The trial itself is outside of you. But the temptation is is within you. What hooks appeal to you? What hooks appeal to you? And the same hooks aren't necessarily going to appeal to everybody. We don't all face the same amount of temptation in the same areas or categories of sin. What tempts me to a greater degree might not be what tempts you to that great of a degree. So we need to beware of being too self-righteous when we see someone else falling for a certain kind of sin that doesn't tempt us all the while thinking in our minds and judging them proudly and arrogantly. God doesn't make you sin. You sin. I sin. And sometimes the devil aids you in your sin, but he does it according to your desires. When you look to fulfill your desires outside of Christ, that's when temptation comes. God made us with desires, good desires, desires for intimacy and food and rest and success and security And God places within us all those good desires. But when we seek fulfillment outside of God's word and his will for us, they become sinful desires. They become sinful desires. And what it is, it's all idolatry. It's all idolatry because you're trying to fill your desires with something that is apart from Christ. You're worshiping what you are after. What is actually causing you to worry and to doubt and to fear and to sin, what is it? 
What's causing that? Is it the circumstance you're in? Is it the trial itself? I would say no. It's the desire for us to want to be in control, for us to be in charge, for us to know what is happening, to take the place of God. And that is obviously not from God. He did not put the desire in your heart for you to be God, for you to replace him, for you to be self-sufficient. But your heart, John Calvin has said, is an idol factory. John MacArthur has said, the problem is not the tempter from without, but the traitor within. We are to recognize that temptation originates from within us. The source is our strong desire, craving, and appetite within our own hearts for something in the place of a good God and his perfect will for us. You have something that you want in your heart and you think you're not having it fulfilled in Christ, and so you're going to look for it outside of Christ. You're going to look for it somewhere else whether it be happiness or comfort or pleasure, success or anything else, whatever it might be. But we need to understand that it's not just the actions that are sinful, but also the desires of our hearts that are contrary to God's. If we are to respond wholeheartedly to him in a way that glorifies him and in a way that will allow us to properly address it and triumph over it, to have victory over it. Sin and holiness are matters of the heart, and they cannot be reduced to merely external actions. God-honoring, Christ-like, spirit-driven holiness is a matter of the thoughts, of the affections, of the desires, as well as the actions. Because God does not merely command us to behave righteously, even though he does that. He commands us to be holy, and our growth and our holiness is an internal matter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's not enough to clean the outside and to whitewash the tombs. It's not enough to just put on an external performance. It, what matters is your heart. Matthew 18, verse 35, Jesus tells us that the Father is not satisfied with hypocritical forgiveness. He says that the Father is going to cast into hell to be tortured those who do not forgive their brother from the heart. Acts chapter 8, verse 22, Simon the sorcerer seeks to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money, and Peter rebukes him and says, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon didn't need forgiveness merely for his attempted bribery. He needed forgiveness even for the intention of his heart. Romans 6 verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. Obedient from the heart. That's internally. Ephesians 6 verse 5 and 6 Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling 
in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is speaking of progressive sanctification where God works in us not merely to work, but also to will. He's working even on our desires, our wills. So the desires of our flesh, the desires that characterize our old life of sin, they are to be the object of our mortification. We are to put them to death. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The passions and desires of the flesh must be crucified in principle and in practice. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions zealous for good works. It's both internal and external obedience. First Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Again, both inner and outward obedience. Colossians 3, 5 and 6, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, holiness is not merely a matter of bringing your outward behavior into conformity with an external standard. Holiness does require holy behavior and conduct, but it's, that's not all it requires. It also requires holy affections, holy desires, because God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties, but he has also commanded us to have the right heart as we do those external duties. We cannot fool God. We cannot fool. We may fool those around us, but God knows our hearts. He has given us a new heart to be able to obey him and please him and have the proper desires. First Peter 5.2, an exhortation to elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, willingly, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not just shepherd the flock of God, but to do it willingly and eagerly. Would you want me just to outwardly preach the word but inside, I care not about you guys. It's both what I do and what is inside my heart. God commands our affections as well as our actions. So the truly holy person does not merely do what God commands, but he also loves what God loves and he desires what God desires and he responds in accordance with his new heart and his new nature. To suggest that temptations are not a sin to be mortified as long as those are not acted upon is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. 
It's not making the tree good so that it bears good fruit. That's just taking off the bad fruit. We are not to battle with sin at the level of the fruit. We are to battle with sin at the level of the root, the sinful desires of our heart. That's what you need to address. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's desires, it's the desires within that produce the outward behaviors. Matthew five, twenty seven and twenty eight. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just the acts, but the sinful desires that lead to those acts that are sinful. The extent to which we disconnect affections from actions is the same extent to which we will turn biblical sanctification into mere behavior modification. Scripture tells us that sin is not merely what we do, It's not even merely what we feel. It's who we are. It's who we are. It's the condition of our souls. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The fact that our sinful desires seem to spring forth from us so naturally just testifies to the corruption of our hearts, how depraved we really are. When we are tempted... The fact that we find our temptations so enticing and luring only means that our sin problem is worse than we thought it was. It's deep within our hearts. But the objection is that simply experiencing temptation cannot be sinful in itself because, and they'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, where it says the Lord Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. How are we to understand that? There are two kinds of temptation, external and internal temptation. External temptation is temptation that is experienced entirely from without. It is an external solicitation to sin. External temptation is what Jesus experienced in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tempted him. It was not sin for Jesus to be tempted in that way. That's an external temptation. To be the object of Satan's external solicitations, to be tempted externally is not itself sinful. On the other hand, internal temptation is temptation that arises from within our own sinful heart. This is what James is talking about. So the reason that it was not sin for Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness is not merely because he never performed the acts that Satan wanted him to or is trying to get him to do. It was because Christ never even desired to perform them. In other words, Satan's external temptation never passed into internal temptation in Jesus' heart because he was sinless. He has no sin nature. In John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says to his disciples, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, for he has nothing in me. That means that there was nothing in his sinless nature that could have even produced a desire for evil. That means that whatever temptations Jesus faced, were only external temptations. In our case, Galatians 5.17, as believers, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For us, there is a war that is being waged. Romans 7.22, 
says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. But for Jesus, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering for sin, Romans 8.3, he had no sinful flesh and there was no internal war. So therefore, he was able to condemn sin in the flesh as her substitute, as the perfect substitute. He not only performed righteousness, but he loved and desired righteousness at every single moment. He never desired to do anything but the will of his Father. John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John five nineteen, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Christ was holy in his affections as well as in his actions. So Hebrews 4.15, again, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, tempted only externally. And in all things as we are does not mean that Jesus experienced each and every temptation, both external and internal, that each and every human being has ever faced. That's easy to deny. Jesus didn't have the particular temptations that a father would. He was never a father. Or as a husband, he was never a husband. Or even as a female, he wasn't a woman. He was not a mother or a wife. He didn't have the temptations of that come with old age and aging bodies. He died in his early 30s. And so that's not what that means. The phrase, in all things, in Hebrews 4.15, it doesn't have a universal sense. It's only used one other time in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 17, where, again, the author there is discussing Jesus' temptations. He says Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, there, in all things cannot have a universal sense. Jesus was not made like his brethren in absolutely all things without exception. They are sinners. He was not. They were naturally conceived. He was supernaturally conceived. And there's a, you can go on. So the objection of Hebrews 4.15 doesn't work. But then you come to James chapter 1, verse 15. What about the objection of what it says there? Look at what verse 15 says. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That sounds like only when it's acted upon that it's sin. And we have to understand, again, what the New Testament usage of the word sin implies. There's two different distinct senses of the New Testament usage for sin. Some texts speak of sin as a reference to a particular sinful deed or behavior. But in other texts, sin refers to the principle of sin or the condition of sin or the inclination to sin that resides within the heart. This is the law of sin in the members of my body which wages war against the law of my mind, Romans 7.23. That's not any particular commission of an act of sin externally. That's the law that's residing within you. So the term can be used both ways. And interestingly, of the seven times James uses the word sin in his letter, every other occurrence is a clear reference to a sinful deed. To a sinful deed, chapter 2, verse 9. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess your sins there means specific sins. Not that just you have a sin nature and you confess that. We already know that. So given James' usage of this word in his letter, sin here refers to the commission of sinful acts externally. James isn't telling us when sin begins. James is not telling us when sin begins. He is telling us when sin breaks forth. Sin begins in the heart and breaks forth in the sinful behavior. And so there is indwelling sin, the temptation caused by our own desires, in verse 14, actual sin, the birth of sin, in verse 15a, and perfected sin, the deadly, fully grown, matured sin, in verse 15b. When James talks about temptation leading to sin, he does not mean that the temptation is morally neutral. One who is experiencing temptation caused by his own desire is already experiencing the reality of indwelling sin. Though he, though that indwelling sin in the Christian can be resisted not to give birth to actual or acted upon sin. So the process outlined is not one that moves from innocence to sin, but rather one that sees indwelling sin move from the mind to the affections, to the will, to the outward working of sin. James is saying that sinful desire gives birth to sinful acts. It's from the sinful desire that's already within us that comes out of us. So desires are not morally neutral. He says that the desires lure and entice us. That doesn't sound like a neutral desire. So when your sinful desire has conceived, verse 15, that means that your sinful desire has already drawn you out and enticed you and that comes together with your willful decision to act upon it. That's when it's conceived and acted upon. And when sin is accomplished, meaning brought to completion or full maturity, it brings forth death. The wages of sin is always death. And this shows the certainty of the consequences of sin. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. This shows how serious sin is. Just one sin, because this is talking about a specific sinful deed. Just one sin brings physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. For a believer, sin can lead to physical death. Either in that moment, 1 John 5.16 references something that happens like that. Or even 1 Corinthians 11, improperly taking the Lord's table in an improper manner. But it doesn't lead to spiritual death or eternal death. For an unbeliever, sin can lead to physical death and lead to eternal death because of their spiritual death. Sin is powerful. Sin is destructive. Sin is deadly. This contrasts with God's holiness. We cannot blame God for temptation and we cannot blame God for sin. It is on us. So how do we persevere in trials? It is to know how good God is and how unworthy and how undeserving we are of his grace. We are the ones that fail him. We are the ones that sin. We are the ones that are carried away and enticed by our own lusts. 
We are the ones that at times seek things to fulfill our desires that are not pleasing to God because we look away from him and replace him and see those things as better than him. And this understanding of our own sin in light of his wisdom and blessings and holiness, who he is, strengthens us to turn away from temptation and sin and to turn to him in obedience. In scripture, the acting upon of something prohibited and also the desires and inclinations of the heart that lead to those behaviors that are prohibited are both considered sinful. But this actually gives people hope that they don't have to be enslaved to their sinful desires, but can find freedom and wholeness in Christ and his wisdom and power to walk in newness of life. Those temptations can be overpowered and conquered if you are in the one who has conquered all sin. You can have victory over any sin because you are blessed in Christ and have access to the treasure of wisdom and knowledge and you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit to fight against indwelling sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God has promised not to allow more than believers can endure, and never without a way of escape. Believers choose whether to take the escape God provides or to give in, to turn to him or to turn away from him. In every moment of temptation, God provides a way of escape so that you can honor him. And that way of escape is never sin. It's an escape from sin. It's also not an escape from the trial because God is using the trial for your good and for his glory. That is why reminding ourselves of the gospel daily is so important. We sometimes can forget the seriousness of sin or the deadly effects of sin when we meditate upon our own sins and what it deserves and how much we've sinned, even the desires are sinful, not just the acts. And we look to the Savior who came to bear his life upon the cross, to take all of our sins upon himself, to die in our place so that we could be forgiven. It brings us to worship and obedience. It brings us to walking the path of righteousness. It reminds us of how much We need him. We need him. And it reminds us of that. Even a single thought that comes from within our own hearts over this sinful desire deserves death. It brings forth death. Christians can triumph in temptation, and they do triumph in temptation. The battle plan for victory is given here. Acknowledge and declare that God is not the one tempting you and that he is holy, and that he caused you to be holy. Then you have to identify the source before you can properly address it. The source is the sinful desires within your heart. And then identify that strong desire. Identify that temptation. The temptation is not your circumstance. The temptation is what your heart wants and craves for and needs satisfied. You cannot rightly fight temptation until you rightly identify it. Why am I tempted? Get to the heart reason. Then confess it and repent of it 
Yes, even of the sinful desires and thoughts and longings of your heart, those must be repented of also. Tell God what God says about it. Agree with him in confession. Then change and respond wisely. Change your mind and respond accordingly. That's repentance. Turn your mind and align it with his word and respond accordingly. You have to stop it immediately and not allow temptation to proceed unhindered for it to move from desire which starts with the emotions to the go to the mind which leads to the thoughts and then to the will which takes action through a choice. You need to stop it right away. Declare that God is holy and he wants us to be holy. Identify the temptation and address the temptation from the heart that's causing those desires. You are as... Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 teaches to put off the old self, the sinful desires, and to put on the new self, righteousness and character and conduct in obedience to God. So what does this look like? What does this look like? Let's take anxiety. Anxiety. What do we know about anxiety? It's a desire for us to want to know what's going on, for us to be in control that could be causing us to doubt and worry and fear that's leading to that anxiety within us or outwardly and within our hearts. So we are to acknowledge who God is. He's holy. He's good. Acknowledge that this anxiety comes from our own sinful hearts. Identify it. Put it off. Remove it. Okay, this is what's causing the anxiety within my heart. Replace it with the word of God, with what you know to be true about who God is. Okay, God is good. He's always good. God is holy. He's always holy. God is right. God is kind. God is loving. God is whatever. And so you look into your anxiety. You're able to rightly diagnose the heart issue that's there. You look to God's word and replace those thoughts with thoughts of who God is, and what God tells us in his word to do, to respond rightly, then you resolve to rightly respond. What does his word tell us? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. Cast your burdens on him, for he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7. Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Turn to him. And that passage there is sandwiched between the, the contentment, learning contentment, and prayer and anxiety is in the middle. So we need to surround anxiety with learning to be content in all circumstances because God is good and then praying for the God of peace to bring peace into our anxiety. It's surrounding ourselves with a greater view of who God is and what his word says. Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life. And that passage ends with, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. It has its own cares, cares. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on. God in heaven cares for you and will provide for you. You look to his scriptures to address the anxiety and how we are to rightly respond. And you look again, I need to resolve your, you need to resolve yourself to respond rightly to his word in trust, in contentment, in whatever circumstance you're in to rejoice because Christ wants you to obey him and he has died on the cross for you to be able to overpower your anxiety 
to have victory over your anxiety. You're not stuck there. You're not enslaved to it for the rest of your life. You have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that you can succeed over the temptation to be to have anxiety or to worry or fear, whatever that is causing that. He conquered and is victorious over sin and death, and therefore we have victory over our temptations and sins. And that is good news. Is Christ your Lord and Savior? Is Christ your Lord and Savior? If not, you are a sinner and your sins earn you God's righteous eternal wrath because he is holy and he must punish sin. God is just and so every sin must be paid for because his, and be, but because of his mercy and grace and love, God demonstrates his love by sending his one and only son to save sinners. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute in the place of sin, paying the penalty for their sins fully and completely and rose again on the third day because he conquered sin and death for all those who would repent and believe in him. Turn away from your sins. Turn to Christ in faith and you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven because they have been paid for by Christ. You will be reconciled to God. You will be justified before him because you have been credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. He lived in your place. You will have a new, you will be a new creation because you have been made spiritually alive with a new heart, new desires, new affections to live for him and to please him and to obey him. You'll be freed from the bondage of sin and freed to have victory over sin and any sinful desire and free to obey him and live for him. And you will experience eternal life instead of eternal death, the wages of sin. Because of the gospel, Christians can say, I made me do it, but Christ makes me not to have to do it. And because he has paid for all my sins and I love him, I want to live for him. I want to turn away from sin. I want to pursue righteousness. I want to pursue obedience because I know that will please him. And that is what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart from sin and unto Christ, to hate what God hates and to love what God loves, to follow the path of heavenly wisdom laid out in his word. That is growing into Christian maturity. We cannot accuse God for our own temptations and sins ever. When it comes to external trials, they come from a good God to accomplish a good purpose in us. When it comes to internal temptations, they do not come from God. Yet God provides a way of escape and victory and is used by a good God to accomplish a good purpose in us. He works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What hope and what comfort to know how deep our sin really is and how great a Savior that we have. And because of how easy it is for our desires to pull us away from him, it helps us to know how much we need him and that he is always with us and there for us. So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Temptation and sin only shows us that we need more of him. And trials and temptations reveal that to us graciously. Trials and temptations reveal to us 
that we need God more. Everything always points back to God. Everything always points back to Christ and what he's done for us, for us to realize what we don't deserve, but what we have. And what we do have, we need to look to the one that we have for all things and not look to ourselves, not to look to anyone or anything else in this world that will not satisfy because we have the one who is and who will always be our God and Father in heaven who has sent his son to come die in our place that we may be with him forever. And we can rejoice in this life and enjoy all things, even the trials and temptations, because we know that we have a way of escape, a way that points us back to him. We can live for him and we must live for him. And this is the path to Christian maturity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do work all things out for our good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that though we often fail you, uh, you do not fail us. You will not forsake us, but you're working even within us through our sins and our temptations and lustful desires uh, to draw us, to reveal to us, to expose to us the depravity of our own hearts that we may turn and see your goodness and grace and mercy upon us, that it would cause us to live in obedience to you, to worship you for who you are, and to give you all the glory for it. We thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. We pray that we would apply it to our lives and see that sin is powerful and deadly and all around us, especially within our own hearts. And would we strive in obedience and by the power of your spirit to fight against the temptations that would cause us to sin, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray that your spirit would continually help us, strengthen us, and empower us to do that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.